it says in the book of Proverbs, chapter 19, verse 21, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And that's true, as is most of the things in the Bible, right? Uh, Of course that's true. We know it's true. It is sometimes more difficult to accept truth and to live it out and to practice it. And we never know uh, what the future holds. The future is often very, very surprising. Uh, In new information that comes to light, in the twists and turns of our lives, uh, you probably didn't know, and maybe you don't know, that uh, four years ago, exactly, uh, May 1st, uh, I started here uh, as the pastor. And four years later, you know, and you're, and you're clapping to say, congratulations, church, we've put up with them. Good for us, you know, for four years. And to be honest, for me, uh, it doesn't seem like four years. Uh, and I won't tell you if it seems longer or shorter, but uh, it, it doesn't seem like four. That is not the number uh, that I would uh, assign to it. Lots of mistakes in four years for any of us. Uh, lots of sin in four years for any of us. That's part of it. Things done that shouldn't have been done, things not done that should have been, sins of commission and omission. I'm as guilty of all of those as anyone else. And yet it's amazing to me to see the grace of God continue to be at work in the life of this church and in my life personally. God is very gracious, very patient, very kind, very very forgiving. He's a great master. He's a great Lord who loves us and is among us as one who serves and who serves even by pouring out his life for us. So four years here. This week, I celebrate uh, another milestone. Uh, This week, Heather and I are celebrating our 15th wedding anniversary. You can clap for that. That's actually pretty good. I I have never been married longer than I've been married to Heather, you know, for 15 years. So every day, it's just, it keeps adding to my record, you know, which is, which is pretty great. And so we're thankful uh, for that. Uh, Heather actually says that she has one regret, uh, and that is that we're Baptists rather than Roman Catholic. Uh, because if she was Catholic, she probably would have been sainted by now uh, for, for putting up with me for all of this time. You think four years here is a lot, 15 behind closed doors is something, an order of magnitude different. Uh, let, me, let me assure you. So uh, you can continue to pray uh, for her. Uh, and, and also, um, for me, actually, when we got married, I also started a full-time vocational ministry at that same time. So 15 years for me uh, in full-time vocational uh, pastoral ministry and all the different opportunities the Lord has given. Well, many of you married longer than 15 years. Uh, many of you have been working at your vocations for longer. Many of you are retired. And so you know life changes. You know that. And you know that very unexpected things happen, uh, things that you could never have imagined you know, when you were starting out, uh, trials and tribulations, difficulty, uh, but also rich blessings, uh, times of joy, times of, times of sorrow. It all goes into being human 
being in this world that is glorious in one way and cursed and broken in another way, uh, salvaged by the redemptive grace of God, but still very difficult at many times. And you know probably in your experience that you have moved in stages. Sometimes you feel very close to the Lord. Sometimes perhaps the Lord feels very distant to you. Uh, Sometimes you feel very zealous. Uh, We use the language of being on fire for God. Uh, Sometimes it seems your heart's really cold. Uh, Things have cooled down. The ardor of the first love has dissipated. We go through phases. We go through times of transition. And I think, to be honest, I think that the church is in a time of transition here. Um, And we don't know what the future looks like. Uh, When I came four years ago, uh, you know, we were told there's 160 people normally in attendance, 160 adults. And we didn't talk about how many kids there were, uh, which I actually never clued into until I came here and found out we didn't talk about them because there really weren't very many. And so the church, when you looked around, I remember people came come to visit sometimes and, and they would say, you know what, you know, I just walk in and all there is is gray hair. Uh, I, I remember uh, being told that. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that just in terms of the demographics. And and in kindness, they didn't mention that there there is some baldness too, you know, but it was, it was mainly, you know, gray hair. The, the point was that, you know, the church was quite old. Uh, not many young people. Not many families. Not many children. And uh, a little while ago, someone came to visit, actually, and, and their comment to me was, oh, that's, that's a pretty young church. But wow, that's quite a change. Quite a change. And, you know, there are, Lord willing, there are a number of babies uh, that, you know, in gestation at the moment, in process, in production. Uh, and... Uh, I probably should have thought of a more clever way of saying that. Uh, that's why that's why some pastors write out manuscripts so they actually know what to say. Uh, so we're expecting uh, some children, you know, to be born in the summer and in the fall. Just so there's there's exciting things taking place here, and we should be very thankful to God. Uh, we have sadly we've lost a number of people who were very dear to the church, very involved for for their life for decades and decades, and that. Obviously, that leaves spaces that can never be filled by someone else. People are individuals; they're unique, and so it's never a number. It's never a matter of counting numbers because when a number represents a person, one number is never the same as another number. You just can't replace people that way. And so, the church is in a state of transition demographically and, frankly, financially as. Children are born. Uh, one of the things that I'm not sure if you are aware of is that in our part of the world, you know, we have child labor laws, which does not allow us to press our young children into the workforce, and so they don't have incomes. And of course, if they had incomes, they'd be tithing, like all of you are who have incomes. And so they would be doing the exact same thing, uh, but unfortunately, they can't. And so we end up in a place where we lose people uh, who were giving. And we thank God for new life. We thank God for the children. And we recognize that they're not going to be contributing financially. That's, that's the least part of how anyone contributes to the church anyway. But we do recognize that. And so the number of people here who are able to give and support the work financially, it, it, it's getting smaller as time goes on. Our staff is getting smaller. Brian uh, has left on this wonderful adventure. and We pray for him. And we will, of course, be seeing him and supporting him. 
we don't know what the future looks like for Onside or for Brian. We don't know what the future looks like here at the church. Brian is uh, gone. Uh, Sam is still you know, a month or more uh, in rehab for his leg. And uh, we, we fully expect that Sam is going to be back, and we can't wait for that time. We love him and Lois so much here. Uh, but we still wait, and so we're in a time of transition as far as staffing and budget and building. We're in a time of transition with our building. And so even when we think that we have some plans laid out and the Lord, we trust the Lord and then the Lord does something different, and what can we do but acknowledge that his ways are always better? Uh, never just as good, never inferior, always, always better. And so we prayed and we committed, Lord, we want to do what's right. And so that's what we're doing. We're trusting that the Lord is going to direct our steps if it's not what we originally thought or fine. Good. It's better that way than it was the previous way for whatever the reason God has. Now, I do just want to say this. I, I do think that, um, and I know that everyone knows this. But to me, it is just so important to, without any rhetoric, to really just be profoundly thankful and grateful for all the work that Joe and others have done in investigating all of this. So, Joe, I think you've done a great job. And it's, and it's not, I know it's not just Joe. There's all kinds of people who have been working hard with him. And this is, this is slightly rhetorical, but not, not totally. You know, there were times when I could almost think that, uh, Joe was on staff here. You know, I'd show up in the morning and he's already here. You know, I'd be going home and he's walking in to spend time here. You know, he shows up during the day sometimes. He's on lunch. He runs over. I mean, he's just put in so, many hours. And regardless of what we end up in terms of decisions for the future, we would have no idea what was required, what the real costs were, if it wasn't for all the work that you've done. So, Joe, thank you so much. And we do know also that no labor in the Lord is ever in vain. Even if it doesn't end up going the direction we thought it might, the Lord knows, the Lord honors our commitment and our faithfulness. And you and your team have done just no one could have done better. I, I really believe that. No one could have done better uh, than what you've done. Uh, the text that we're going to be looking at uh, in Luke chapter 7 is also a text about someone who was in transition. John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist had a remarkable life. You know, uh, conceived specially uh, as a gift to uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then fulfilled with the Spirit in the womb, he, he is a prophet in the womb. He leaps for joy when the Mary shows up with Jesus in the womb. So he, he testifies, this is the Lamb of God, even before he's born. It's an amazing thing. And then, of course, he was he baptized Jesus. He, he saw the Spirit descend in the form like a dove. He heard the voice from heaven. And he preached. He didn't hold back. And he preached about morality and was... Because his sermon offended the king, he was put in prison. And of course, and you know that uh, he will be beheaded uh, later. But chapter 7 of Luke, verse 18, says this. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? 
When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say, He has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Before we start uh, working through this passage together, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that our lives and our times are in your hands, and that you not only know what is best, in your sovereignty you can bring it about. And so we rejoice that we are your children. We rejoice that we are your servants. We thank you that you are the one who rules and reigns in heaven. And I pray, Lord, that you will give us attentive hearts and ears to hear and quick feet to follow you. Uh, May you go uh, leading the way before us as you led the children of Israel with the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. Uh, May you track the path for us and may we eagerly follow you. You are a God who is faithful at all times and in all ways. You are a God who never lets us down. Lord, I pray that you will give us the humility and the wisdom and the maturity to submit to your will, to know that you are the great God. You are a king who rules over all things. And you are a king who sent your son and whose son willingly came to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sin. Lord, this gift of love and grace and mercy and compassion is so great that when we see Christ's death on our behalf, we can no longer doubt your intentions and kindness for us. 
And so, Lord, we praise you. Uh, we marvel at you, uh, that you are a God who is transcendent and a God who is near, uh, a God who is exalted above the highest heavens and a God who comes into this world, uh, who becomes a man, uh, joining his full deity with full humanity uh, to walk amongst us, to heal, to teach, and to die and to be resurrected to life again. Lord, I pray that this morning you will help us through your word and through communion uh, to truly honor you, to praise you, and to worship you. Uh, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel uh, of Luke and the other gospels are trying to show you who Jesus is. And they obviously they do that in a variety of ways. And they, they record the acts of Jesus, some of the words of Jesus, you know, the miracles of Jesus. And one of the reasons that they do this is they don't just want to give you information. This is what Jesus was like. This is what he did. This is what he said. They give you that information so that you can know who Jesus is so that you can respond. It is not a matter of just reading for historical interest. The gospel writers want you to know who Jesus is so you can be like him, so you can receive him, so you can acknowledge him. That's what they're aiming for. And so with that, at different times, they will not only show who Jesus is in deed or in word, but they'll also show you how people respond to him. And so there are negative examples of response, and there are positive examples of response, and there are a lot that are good but don't go far enough. So it's very common, actually, for the crowds to think that Jesus is great. It's very common for the crowds to think that Jesus is a mighty man of God, a prophet even, maybe even the greatest prophet Israel has ever seen. There are people who praise God when they see the miracles, but that's not ever good enough. The only people who respond properly to Jesus recognize, yes, he's a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. Yes, he's empowered by God, but he's more than a man empowered by God. He is God in human flesh. He is a Messiah. He is the Savior, but he is a Messiah and a Savior because he dies, not in spite of his death. And so the Gospels are always trying to show you who Jesus is and drive home the point that we need to respond to him. One of the interesting things about this section with John the Baptist is here you see John the Baptist, I think, frankly, just struggling in his faith. And it's easy for us to condemn him. And and actually, it's interesting, you read read commentators, you read scholars on this section, and a lot of them, they, they want to work very hard to exonerate John the Baptist. How could John the Baptist is a strong man with strong faith? So maybe he sends his disciples to Jesus because his disciples are the ones who have questions, and his disciples are the ones who are doubting. I don't think so. I don't think there's anything wrong with presenting people as real people, warts and all. Moses doubts. You know, Jeremiah, you know, weeps his eyes out because of the message that he has to deliver and says to God, I don't want to do this. You know, Elijah after Mount Carmel, after that great victory over all of the hundreds of prophets of Baal, flees away because Jezebel has said that she wants him dead. And he basically collapses in depression in the wilderness and says, Lord, take my life. It's better for me to die. How can Elijah literally come off the height of the mountain in victory, literally down into the valley? And 
yet he'd say, Elijah, don't, don't you remember? Like, don't you just, do you not know what just happened? Of course he does. He was there. John the Baptist was there. And yet, struggling. Unsure. Doubting. Worried. Are you the one who was to come? I was so sure you were. Are you the one? I, I, I was convinced you were the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And, and I think probably there's a sense in which John the Baptist, he still knows it's true, but he's kind of confused. Because one of the parts of the message of John the Baptist was repent, turn away from sin, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here. And he said, the one who comes after me, I baptize you with water, but the one who comes after me, he's going to baptize with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to separate the chaff from the wheat and burn up the chaff. And this is a coming of judgment. And he sees the ministry of Jesus unfolding. And I think this is the same question that a lot of the, the Jews had as well. Where is the judgment? And of course, they thought judgment was going to be the destruction of the Romans, the destruction of their enemies. The Messiah is supposed to show up and burn up our enemies. And John the Baptist, now languishing in prison, in a dungeon, and he's saying, you're the, you're the Messiah. How can my life be like this if you are the Messiah? How can I be here if you are the one who was to come? Why are the enemies triumphing? And at that very time, we're told Jesus was conducting miracles. He was healing people. Uh, the blind were receiving sight. The lame were walking. Lepers were cleansed. The deaf heard. Uh, the dead were raised. And this draws on material you've seen in Luke's gospel, but it's also drawing on categories from Isaiah about what will happen when the servant of the Lord comes and the Lord pours out you know, mighty acts of redemption you know, in the world. And so Jesus says, just go back and tell him you're seeing the fulfillment of Isaiah. You're seeing the fulfillment of scripture in my life. And I just want to mention just one thing here, sort of off to the side. Notice this list. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And this comes just after the section where Jesus raises the widow's son to life. So the dead are raised. That's pretty good, right, in terms of signs. The dead are raised. How do you top that? To me, that's the ultimate display of power and redemptive grace. But that's not the ultimate sign to Jesus. He doesn't conclude with that. He concludes with, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus says, if you want to know who I am, look at all of the signs, but the biggest thing of all is the proclamation of the good news to the poor. And that's the ultimate standard. That's the ultimate test for the ministry of Jesus. And so the messengers go back to John the Baptist in prison to tell him what Jesus has said. Jesus is giving this evidence, word and deed, that he is the one who was to come. And then Jesus speaks to the crowd. He says, listen, you know John the Baptist. You know, you went out into the desert. What did you go out to see? Something common like a reed swaying in the wind or perhaps something even maybe vacillating or fickle? No. You know, did you go to see someone you know, dressed in soft clothes or fine clothes or extravagant, luxurious clothes? 
And we know from the Gospels that John was dressed in camel hair, you know, with a leather belt around his waist. And so, no, you know, you didn't go out there to see someone you know, who was dressed in fine clothes. Those people, and here I think Jesus takes a, you know, a, a shot at Herod. You know, no, those people are in the palaces. You know, God's servants are in the dungeons. You know, they're out in the wilderness. Uh, but those who are living in luxury, yeah, you'll find them in the palace. Uh, they're the ones who are persecuting the servants of the living God. What did you go to see? Well, you went out to see a prophet. And more than a prophet. In fact, this is someone who's so important that he was the, he was the object of prophecy. That is, I, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. In other words, John the Baptist is a prophet and his coming as a prophet was prophesied about. And so this is something very special. You know, someone who is the fulfillment of prophecy in his own prophetic function. And so Jesus is John the Baptist, this guy languishing you know, in this dungeon, this guy who's really uncertain and unsure of what's going on. I want you to know there is no one who has ever been born who is greater than he is. But the person who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now, what does this mean? John the Baptist sort of straddles the eras of redemptive history. John the Baptist is the last of the Old Covenant prophets and the first of the New Covenant prophets, in a sense. Everyone who was prophetic about the Messiah before John the Baptist would say, the Messiah is coming. John the Baptist pointed him out. That's the one. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus says... John the Baptist, no one in history was greater than John the Baptist because he got to do that. But everyone in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Why? Because we know more about Jesus than John the Baptist did. We, this side of the cross, look back at how he redeemed, how he was king. We know about the resurrection. We know about you know the, the revelation of eschatology and all of the rest. And so as Christians, we are people who actually can point others to Jesus more thoroughly and more explicitly than John the Baptist could. And so for us, we are actually greater than John the Baptist because we know more about Jesus than John the Baptist did. You know, John the Baptist said, this is the one who will do this. We say, that's the one who did it. And this is how. And so the least Christian is has a more powerful testimony to the saving grace of God in Christ than John the Baptist did. That's an extraordinary thing. And it actually says very little about John the Baptist, and it says very little, little about us. But it says an awful lot about Jesus. If you were to think that, let's say that, uh, you know, Graham were to come up and do an announcement... It's a pretty, you don't have to imagine that that happened today. So just try to imagine. He came up and he did that. And then he added this. This is your imagination. And then he said, and so I'm just going to have uh, Steve come up now. And Steve's going to preach. And I, and I come up. I come over here and I say, you know what? I just want you to know something. Graham is the greatest person in the history of the world. Because he had the privilege of introducing me to you. If I was serious, my odds of being here in another four years would probably be pretty small, right? Uh, Like, 
But you couldn't even process that. If the person was serious, it would be some sign of either horrific sin or delusions of grandeur or some sort of psychological abnormality. I mean, that's just weird and wrong. Unless it's true. And if it's true, it doesn't say very much about Graham, but it says an awful lot about me. If I am so important that the person who introduces me to others becomes the most important person in history up until that time, that says an awful lot about how important I am. And that's what's going on with Jesus. Jesus gets up and says, John the Baptist is the greatest person in history because he was the prophet who pointed people to me. It is the highest claim of the honor that is owing to Jesus. Now, so John the Baptist accepts that Jesus is the Messiah, but is doubting. So then Jesus turns then to address another group, the crowds, this generation, in verses 34 or 31 and following. He says, what then, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. And he says, John the Baptist came and they, and he was austere and they said he's demonic. I come, you know, eating and drinking with sinners and they say that I'm a wicked person, you know, a partier and a drunkard. In other words, the crowd, no matter what the game is, they will not play. If it's a happy game, you know, if it's a run around game, they don't want to do that. If it's a board game, if it's a quiet game, they don't want to do that. No matter what you suggest, they don't want to do it. John the Baptist comes, it's a message of judgment. They don't want to hear it. Jesus comes, offering forgiveness and healing and love and compassion. They don't want to hear it. They will not hear the message. And so, Jesus, what do you want? You know, maybe, I don't know if you ever feel this way, but in society sometimes, I just want to say to people, you know, what do you want? Because when we draw a line in the sand and say, no, that's wrong, then we are immediately bigots and hypocrites, holier than thou, you know, stick in the mud, whatever. But then if we don't draw the line in the sand, then it's, oh, you're no different from anyone else anyway. You know, we do this, you do that, you don't have a problem with this, so we're all the same. So, well, what do you want from us? When we spend time with people, then we're just like them. If we don't spend time with people, then we're, you know, judgmental and intolerant. What do you want? People reject the message of love. People reject the message of wrath. People reject the, the compassion and mercy of God. People reject the holiness and the righteousness and the judgment of God. It doesn't matter what you preach. It doesn't matter what the message is. It doesn't matter what you do. People reject it. Jesus says, well, how, how do you please people who won't be pleased? Well, you can't. You just can't. But wisdom keeps sending her children anyway. Some will come and say, God loves you. Be reconciled to him. Some will come and say, God is furious with sin. Lay down your rebellion. Stop. Stop dishonoring God. Flee from the wrath to come. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. And Jesus says that there's going to be all kinds of crowds. He characterizes his whole generation that way. No matter what the message is, people will not hear. 
And so you see here two different responses. You see John the Baptist with faith, but struggling. And maybe some of you can identify with that, either at different periods in your life or maybe even today. Faith, but struggling. Faith, but uncertainty. Faith, but doubts. Maybe because of your circumstances. If God was really in control, if God really loved you, would it really be like this? Are you the answer? Or is there another answer somewhere? Is it you or is it someone else? Or maybe you're someone who just has decided you just won't be satisfied. No matter what the message is, you always find a way to reject it. Always find a way to dismiss it. It just doesn't matter what's preached. You come in, you go out, and you just will not hear no matter what. Well, there's another response, two other responses actually coming up. Verses 36 through 50, we read this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So you have John the Baptist in turmoil, doubting, uncertain, confused. You have the crowds who just aren't going to be happy no matter what goes on. They've already made that decision. And here you have this Pharisee who invites Jesus over, maybe to investigate him, maybe he's suspicious, maybe he's open and really wants to know, who is this teacher? Is this person really from God? But Simon the Pharisee you know, ends up completely misunderstanding Jesus. He writes him off, he rejects him. He's not a true prophet. And interestingly, Simon rejects Jesus as a prophet because Jesus doesn't think the same way he does. Now, that is very important to understand. We tend to have our views of what Jesus should and should not be like. We tend to have our views of what God should and should not be like. And what we need to do is we need to allow Jesus to show us what he actually is like. But too often, we want to make Jesus into our own image. So in the with the Pharisee here, he's saying, well, I wouldn't have anything to do with that person. 
I would kick them out. So if Jesus doesn't kick them out, he's obviously not from God. Because my standard is always right. Even if it comes to weighing and evaluating Jesus, I wouldn't have anything to do with her. He does, so he's not truly from God. It assumes, of course, that Simon is in the right. He sort of arrogated to himself this luxury of being the righteous one, even in the room with Jesus. Simon has failed in hospitality, as Jesus makes very clear. Simon failed to recognize the worth of Jesus. He's right there. He's talking to him. Jesus addresses him with teaching personally for him. And Simon has just completely failed to see the value and worth of Jesus. But this sinful woman has. We don't know her name. Uh, Obviously, her reputation has preceded her. And there are all kinds of debates about exactly what it means that she was a sinful woman and all the rest. And you can you can investigate those on your own. Probably the consensus view is, is that she's a prostitute. Uh, that's not absolutely certain, although it would certainly not be an, an irrational uh, conclusion to draw. But regardless, here is someone who comes in and everyone knows this is a wicked sinful, unclean person. And she takes an enormous risk in even coming into the home of a, of a, of a Pharisee. She exposes herself to public ridicule, to hatred, to scorn. This is an enormous risk that she is willing to take. And she comes prepared with a perfume. This is premeditated. And so what we know even though we're not told how she knew about Jesus, we know that she did. Uh, Jesus has said that, you know, that, that tax collectors and prostitutes are going into the kingdom of heaven in front, before the religious professionals. And there are people who, there are crowds who heard Jesus speak. There are people who saw him perform miracles. There are people who, who were sort of lingering in the corners and in the shadows, on the periphery who were never welcomed in, who knew that they couldn't go in, who knew that they they were not anyone who was going to be allowed to come and mingle with that crowd. But they were hanging out. They, They were sort of skulking around, listening to what Jesus was saying. Maybe, maybe Jesus passed her on the street. Maybe Jesus was the only man in a very, very long time for her who looked at her like a person, who who didn't treat her like something disgusting and unclean, and who didn't treat her like an object for his desire. Maybe maybe Jesus spent a few moments just looking her in the eye and talking to her. Maybe she, we don't know. But she obviously knew that this was someone unlike anyone else that she had ever met. And so she came planning and prepared to do something beautiful to recognize and honor him. As Jesus says in this parable, in an explanation, she loved him. She loved him. Because he loved her. And who knows how many years she had been living this lifestyle without anyone ever truly loving her. And so for the first time 
in the face of forgiveness and mercy and compassion and love. Her whole world is completely reoriented. And she comes risking social scandal and shame to do something beautiful for Jesus, someone who loves her and who she has come to love. She is the one, not the crowds, not the Pharisees. I want to be careful here, but even more than John the Baptist, this sinful woman is the one who sees who Jesus is. This sinful woman, out of all of the people, she would have been the last person in all of the crowd that you would think, here's the one who will get it. But she's the one who got it. Why? Because she knew she had a lot of sin. There was no sugarcoating it. There, there was no pretending. There was no thin religious veneer. There was no, you know, taking, putting a little bit of capital in your church membership, you know, or in all the different things you've done. There was none of that. There was no religious, you know, capital to hang on to. There, it was, there was none of that. This was a broken, disgraced person who knew nothing but shame and brokenness. It's all she knew. That's all she had to offer. And she was loved by God. And she was accepted by Jesus. And she was loved by Jesus. And her many sins were forgiven by Jesus. And so Jesus says, you know what? Listen, if you understand who I am, and you understand who you are, then you will be someone who loves a lot. Because sometimes, what he's not saying here is, you know, uh, there's some people who have, have a lot of sin, some people have a little bit of sin. You know, in the kingdom of heaven, we're all going to get together one day and we're going to sit down and we're going to say, okay, let's list all of the sins. And I bet the people who sinned the most will love the most and the people who didn't sin, you know, who sinned the least will love the least. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that if you don't get who you are, you're not going to love Jesus very much. But if you really understand who you are before a holy God, and you understand that Jesus loves you, that he receives you and forgives you, you'll, you'll love him with all of your heart and soul and mind. It's right. it'll, it'll, it'll change your life. So this isn't a matter of comparing up people to people. This is a matter of me alone before God. How great is my sin? And he accepts me. There's just no room to compare myself to anyone else, whether I think I'm better or worse. It's just just irrelevant. The gap between me and an infinite God is infinite. And he loves me. This sinful, unnamed woman is the person who gets the value of Jesus. If you were followed around for the next month, and just so you know, not sure if you knew this, if you're a church member, but in the fine print, we actually have the right to have surveillance systems on you. So I know a lot about what you're doing, and stop, okay? Do better. Uh, If we were to trail you around for a month or so, would people say, wow, you know, there is just irrefutable evidence that they've been forgiven of their sins. Look at how much they love Jesus. Because that's how you can tell. 
She's not forgiven because she loves. She loves because she's forgiven. Her love is the overflow of her forgiveness. It's not the ground for it. It's not salvation by works through our love. It's love in response to salvation by grace through faith. He, you notice he says it's not your love has saved you. It's your faith has saved you. And faith has an object. Faith is entrusting yourself to Jesus. It's always, it's never the faith that we have that is, that is responsible for our salvation. It's always the object of our faith. It's Jesus is responsible for our salvation. So it's another way of saying, trusting in me has saved you. I'm the one who saved you. And you trusted me. You've put your faith in me. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Hated, despised, condemned, wicked, sinful, unclean judged and despised and scorned. Go in peace. Go in peace. All your sins are forgiven. Jesus is pretty great. And there's just no one like him. That sinful woman and John the Baptist, I mean, for all of them, for all of us who are saved, It's not just because Jesus has an emotional disposition of love. It's because love compelled him to die for us. So that sinful woman, she's saved because Jesus died for her. And John the Baptist is saved because Jesus died for her. And if we are saved, then we are saved because Jesus died for us. What love. What great love. What enormity of forgiveness. And now we are responsible to go and to love because he first loved us. Andrew Murray McShane has a very famous hymn. I mentioned this in Sunday school a couple weeks ago. I, I won't go through most of it, but there's, there's one, one line, one line. Um, where he has sort of this, this chorus that keeps writing through it, keeps ending sort of the stanza of poetry with, um, then Lord shall I fully know not then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. And the idea is that only when you see, when, when eschatology is fully consummated, only when you stand before Jesus, only then will you know what you really owe him. Right? And that's the line that keeps running through. Not till then, how much I owe. Then, Lord, shall I know. Not till then, how much I owe. Not till then, how much I owe. Not till then, how much I owe. He keeps going on and on about judgment and, and wrath and salvation and seeing Jesus and being purified from sin. Only then will we know how much we owe him. And there's one, one line that's different um, where he says, he, he concludes a stanza by saying, Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. And we'll never know how much we owe Jesus until we see him face to face. But until that day, everyone should see how much we owe him by the display of our love in this world. Teach me, Lord, on earth to show by my love how much I owe. The one forgiven much, loves much, but not as much as Jesus loves us first. I'm going to ask the the men to come forward who are going to help distribute uh, these elements, and we'll celebrate communion uh, together.